Hi, I'm Allison Kubo. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. The last time that both the Hollywood writers and actors went on strike at the same time was in 1960, when the Actors Union was headed by a second-tier character actor named Ronald Reagan. Then as now, Hollywood was paralyzed. The current situation was partly resolved when the strike by the Writers Guild of America was settled. Late Night Television is back, and we'll even get a new episode of Saturday Night Live this week. But there are no new episodes of scripted TV being filmed, and the writer's strike and the still-ongoing actor's strike will both, like, will both probably have long-term significant effects on the economics of Hollywood. So what were the causes of the strike? Why did it end? And who are the winners and the losers? How is the resolution likely to change what we see on our screens? And why are the actors on strike? And how is that one likely to end? We're lucky this morning to be joined by Elaine Lowe, the staff, a staff writer for The Ankler, a website that covers all things Hollywood. She's been closely covering both strikes. We hope you have your popcorn ready. Sit, sit back and let's chat with Elaine. Morning, Elaine. Welcome to Mountain Money. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Elaine, let's start with the actor's strike. I, you know, I talked about the 1960 thing. Can you put the writer's strike into a bit of historical context? You know, what caused past strikes? How were they resolved? And how did that kind of set up where we are today? Sure. Uh, so this most recent strike, which was resolved, uh, you know, a week or two ago, lasted 148 days, making it one of the longest strikes in Hollywood history. For context, the 1988 Writers Guild strike lasted some 22 weeks, which at over 150 days was the longest strike in the Guild's history. Uh, you know, it the Guild has gone on strike several times before. You mentioned 1960 when Ronald Reagan was president of uh, SAG-AFTRA, when, when both, that was the last time there was a concurrent SAG-AFTRA and Writers Guild of America strike. Uh, on the writer's side, that one also lasted about 22 weeks. And, you know, some of the issues that they were striking over were residuals, which is something we're going to hear time and again when we talk about the history of writers and actors going on strike. Uh, that was the first time they had gotten residuals for theatrical motion pictures. Uh, you know, they also went on strike prior to that in 1953, which was the first time they'd gotten residuals for uh, TV shows. Uh, and essentially, you know, the, it's it's been in response to the changes in the business. It seems like every time there's been a strike, it's uh, been in response to, you know, the economic changes in the business and uh, ensuring a way for writers to uh, get their share of, of, you know, the profit and the revenue. There's been a lot of strikes in the news lately. The strike um, that happened in Hollywood is different than, say, the auto worker strike where a union can negotiate a contract, <clears throat> excuse me, with a specific company. Here, the other party was something called the AMPTP. What is that? So the AMPTP is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. It represents the interests of major studios and streamers, including the largest ones that you think of, Disney, Warner Brothers Discovery, NBC Universal, Sony Pictures, Paramount, Netflix, Amazon, Apple. Those latter few are newer entrants to the group, obviously, as streamers. Uh, and the group actually represents hundreds of producers of content. Now, the AMPTP negotiates some, I think, about 58 guild and union contracts across Hollywood. And they negotiate with the Writers Guild, uh, SAG-AFTRA, which represents, you know, 160,000 performers, uh, the Directors Guild, uh, IATSE, which represents about 150,000 craftspeople, uh, the American Federation of Musicians, and other groups. 
And normally all of these studios and streamers in this group are rivals. They're competitors in any normal business day. But during these negotiations, they act as a united front and the terms of the deals apply uniformly to them afterward. Um, you know, during the course of its nearly 100 year history, various studios have, you know, sort of pulled away and rejoined the group. Uh, and of course, again, that now includes streamers like uh, Amazon Studios and Apple TV Plus. You know, as we segue into, we're going we're gonna to get to talk about residuals. But one of the things that strikes me is that when you talk about the AMT, excuse me, the AMPTP, and the differences in perspective between the streamers and you know the conventional studios and networks who've been used to be paying residuals for years, did those differences in perspective sort of change the negotiation dynamic? I suppose they would. When again, you have Netflix, uh, Amazon, Apple. These are all you know streaming pure plays. These are not companies that have linear broadcast or cable channels. Uh, you know, you have a variety of different stakeholders with different interests. Uh, and during this most recent negotiation, there were rumbles that certain companies might pull away uh, separately to negotiate with the Writers Guild, but that ultimately never happened. Does the fact that the members of that alliance or that association have different perspective complicate the negotiations where you're not just, you know, negotiating with one specific studio? Right. I mean, again, you know, the, the group actually represents hundreds of producers uh, and, you know, these these major studios and streamers are, are you know, sort of the top tier, uh, the sort of the class A group. Um, and so, yeah, they all have very different interests. They are all in various positions of the so-called streaming wars. Netflix is obviously the dominant uh, player there. Uh, and then you have players like Disney, which have different issues that concerned them, uh, you know, with with their pivot to streaming, with all of these other, you know, major players that also have streaming interests now, but also have traditional linear cable and broadcast networks, and um, you know, different different pipelines of content essentially to be concerned about that can uh, presumably change the makeup of their concerns. Now, of course, what how exactly those differed <laughs> are, are those negotiations all took place behind closed doors. But uh, I imagine it's not easy for for there to be a consensus when you have that large of a group of players. Let's sort of let's get into residuals. First of all, mm -hmm. let's let's start with the big picture. What's a residual, and how did it work? If I was a writer on, say, Mash, in the you know th you know thirty years ago. <laughs> sure. So a residual is basically payment for the reuse of material. Basically, when you watch reruns of a TV show or a movie that was originally in theaters, um, you know that's now airing again. Whether you're watching it, you know, late night or uh, late night rerun on on you know broadcast channel or a cable channel or on DVD. You know, writers and actors get paid. Anytime you watch Friends or The Devil Wears Prada on, on cable or on, well, I, I want to say VHS, but not anymore. But, <laughs> you know, someone, someone gets paid a residual for those things. And when the Writers Union, when the Writers Guild of America was founded, well, actually, when the Writers Union was founded some 90 years ago in 1933, it was then known as the Screenwriters Guild, uh, writers didn't receive residuals. But, you know, with the advent of TV brought along with it the advent of a secondary market or an aftermarket for original programming where things would re-air. And in 1953, residuals were established for TV. Um, in 1960, residuals were established for theatrical movies. And again, both of those things were gains from writer strikes in each of those years. And is it a material amount of money that we're talking about that, that these writers would get from a residual? Well, the thing about 
having been on the picket lines and talking to writers and actors these past four and a half months, uh, so many of them have noted the stark difference in the kind of residuals they used to earn uh, versus the kind of residuals they earn now. And a lot of that has to do with disruption from the streaming economy and the way those residuals are structured. And, you know, not to get into much into the nitty gritty of it, but but essentially they used to see larger residual checks, you know, they, and, and I mean, these these checks can sort of vary from the tens of dollars to the hundreds of dollars, depending on what you're, you know, depending on how long the show was running and, you know, how long ago it was running. But these days you hear more stories of very small residual checks and. You know, it's funny. There's even a, a tavern in Studio City, Residuals Tavern, that um, <laughs> if you're a if you're a writer, actor, and you bring in a residual check that's less than a dollar, I believe you can trade that in for a free drink. <laughs> so that's how uh, that's how not uncommon it is. <laughs> so, Elaine, we're here for the nitty gritty. Uh, let's drop it down. One of the things that I think you alluded to was sort of the basic differences in shows that are being made currently for a streaming service where where I take it the residuals are going to be different versus the shows that were made for broadcast that were going to get run over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and again, when talking to writers and actors on the picket lines, it's the difference is I would always hear them say something like, I used to be able to live off of residuals in between jobs. Uh, because essentially those those payments would help to bolster a writer or an actor when they were between writers' rooms, when they were between shows. And with the streaming economy, those numbers have dwindled for them. And so when you fast forward to this strike in 2023, residuals were again part of the writers' demands, asking for improved residuals for certain streaming shows and movies in particular. And the big ask was for a, you know, viewership-based residual on streaming projects on top of the previous fixed residuals, um, which, you know, they were looking for basically if a show was a hit on a streaming service, they wanted to be able to participate in the upside of that. Uh, and the studios initially weren't as willing to engage on that, as I understand it. But the Writers Guild eventually won out and through this strike uh, established residuals for any shows or movies that were made for streaming services that reach at least 20% of a streamer subscribers within the first 90 days of its release. And then they get, you know, a certain viewership based residual on top of, again, the fixed residual that they would already receive. Um, so, you know, that will will presumably help to to offset the, the smaller fixed residuals that they were receiving before. Wouldn't that require the streaming services to disclose data that I understand they've been very reluctant to disclose? That is, you know, who's clicking on what? Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> that is part of it. Uh, and you know, the the studios and streamers in particular have been loath to you know give up a certain amount of data, and and certainly it's easy to understand why. Because again, when these companies are not operating together as a united front during the negotiations, they are competitors, and you know. Presumably, you don't want to release that much information to a competitor or, uh, you know, sort of the broader world. So there are there are reasons for for wanting to keep that information um, proprietary and to yourself. Um, but uh, with this, I believe it's, you know, there's a certain number of hours viewed that they now have to release to the Writers Guild. 
Um, and, you know, for, for showrunners and writers, uh, it's not a ton of data. Obviously, the streamers have a fire hose of data that they're able to sort of slice and dice when they're looking at engagement metrics, when they're looking at completion rates. Um, so it's not, it's, you know, the Red Guild isn't going to have access to that full stream of data, but they will have something um, if to, to sort of contrast and compare because I've, you know, I've talked to showrunners before who have produced shows for streaming networks and really have felt like they were in the dark about how much data they were able to get. And, you know, that can uh, obviously sort of impact your decision making and, and also just, you know, make you feel as though you're not really able to, to fully have a clear view of, of how your show is performing. Another significant issue that was discussed during these negotiations was the, was the use of artificial intelligence. What did the union want and what was the position of the studios? So the Writers Guild wanted language regulating the use of AI, essentially, and they said that the studios weren't uh, initially as willing to engage again. But um, ultimately, the agreement, and this was one of the, you know, AI was really one of the last sticking points in the last few days of this 148-day strike. Um, the agreement ultimately in the new contract is that AI cannot write or rewrite material. It cannot produce source material. If AI is used, uh, both the writers and studios have to agree on it. And the guild also reserves the right to essentially challenge any uh, usage from the studios that, uh, you know, train AI based on writer material. Um, and, you know, it's, it's such a fast moving technology that I don't really know how large AI loomed over any uh, rank and file writer or actor even a year ago, but it really bubbled to the surface during these strikes, uh, really became a, a top concern. Uh, you know, and it's hard to say exactly what role it will play in TV writing and feature film writing, but again, it was a sticking point in those last days of the negotiations. It's an interesting question, and you have to wonder, like like so many other technologies, like how long can can to the extent that it can do some of the things that writers do, how long can they hold mm -hmm. it off, right? I mean, right. And I think with any technology, you know, ultimately the, the concession, right, is that we have to we we live with it when we also find ways to make it useful. Right. And uh, I think the concern is more that you know, writers don't want to ultimately be fully replaced by AI. Um, again, I don't think that technology is here yet, but it's a, a forward-looking concern, much in the way that during the 2007 and 2008 writer strike, writers were looking ahead to so-called new media, which is streaming as we know it, today, which has obviously ballooned into something, uh, an economy much larger than it was in 07 and 08. And I suspect that both radio hosts and online journalists don't want to be replaced by AI either. No, of course not. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about staffing. You, you mentioned mm -hmm. the term writer's room, which is, you know, kind of a term of art within the industry. And, mm. you know, let's, let's take a step back. A, a typical TV show historically would have, a, as I understand it, a writer's room. They would write a number of episodes. You would anticipate a, a season of a network television show to have maybe 20-plus episodes. And the writers would be sort mm. of on salary for much of that time and would be able to see it film. How is that changing? And, and what was the issue that was emerging in the, in the strike? Sure. Well, think about the kind of shows that were on, you know, 10, 20 years ago and the kind of shows that are on today and how long those seasons are, how far 
between uh, those seasons air. You know, you could reliably go to a broadcast network, you know, your your CBS, NBC, ABC channels and watch a sitcom. And that would be what, you know, 22 to 24 episodes a season, right? And now you have this plethora of streaming shows and they're six, eight, ten episodes long. Sometimes they're half an hour, sometimes they're an hour. And, you know, we've seen some shows where, uh, you know, a season airs. And then instead of being able to expect uh, the next season exactly one year later, sometimes there are longer hiatuses between seasons. And so that's really disrupted the traditional, what writers, actors have come to know as sort of the traditional TV season. Um, and again, this is part of another disruption of the streaming economy where you, you know, you have longer times between seasons, the, the, even the, the way TV is developed, there's not really the same um, old fashioned like development and pilot season anymore. Uh, and so, you know, this is another concern that has been to the fore and, and the underlying theme of this all is really for writers is the sustainability of the profession. Right. And that's something that I heard time and again, they're concerned that something that used to be able to be a full-time job is now more of, you know, a so-called part of the so-called gig economy. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the thing that they uh, achieved in this contract is, um, you know, staffing minimums, which is a, a first time uh, language in this contract, which is essentially if there's, a, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, at least uh, at least three writers in a room, um, you know, of for like six episodes. And then I think if it's like seven to 12 episodes, there have to be at least a minimum of five writers and a season of 13 or more episodes has to have at least six writers, which, uh, you know, for them codifying those figures was was really important. And that's something that the studios were also initially uh, resistant to. That makes sense. Um, why did the strike end and who won? Well, uh, I think if you ask the writers, <laughs> which I have, they are all pretty darn happy with this deal. And Honestly, I know that a lot of industry observers and insiders uh, did not expect the Guild to achieve as much as it did with this contract, which were, again, the, the sort of like bold face items were like the highlights were like stack minimums, AI protections, viewership based streaming residuals. Um, and then also, uh, you know, uh, things for the uh, for other parts of its membership, like improved payment schedules for feature film writers, and uh, you know, improved pension and health contributions for writing teams of of two or more. Um, so you know, that's in the writers' eyes, they definitely felt like it was an enormous victory. And you know, the the night that the deal was announced, the details hadn't even yet been released, so we hadn't yet known what was in the contents of the contract. But the writers. Uh, were told by the guild leadership that the deal was quote unquote exceptional and had meaningful gains for all sectors of the membership. And uh, they've been very steadfast in, in you know, uh, trusting guild leadership during this time. And there was just an enormous celebration that erupted all over, all bars all over the city. I went to <laughs> a few to cover the festivities. And, you know, I was up at this bar idle hour in North Hollywood where all the writers were, it's this big barrel shaped bar where all the writers were gathering. And occasionally in this sea of writers, you would just hear occasional cheers burst out. And again, we hadn't even known at that point, it would still be another two days before we knew the content of that contract. But 
uh, it already felt like a victory then. And then when the actual language of the contract came out, people were mighty happy with it. I, I hope the Ankler covered that on their expense account. Uh, <laughs> let, me, let, let me ask this question. A lot of times in a negotiation like this, you know it's going to end when the, when the people that I call the face cards, senior executives, come into the negotiation. Is that what happened mm. here? Yeah, the CEOs and the top executives were in the room those last few days. I mean, really, of the 148 days, the deal was announced on day 146. The strike was declared over on day 148. But it was those last five days leading up to day 146 where uh, studio CEOs and top executives were in the room. Right. And, you know, that uh, obviously when you have the major stakeholders there, it changes things. And you know, that is carrying over now into the ongoing SAG-AFTRA strike, where, again, you have 160,000 performers who uh, went on strike in mid-July, a couple of months after the writers initially went on strike, and continue to be on strike right now. And that that really reopening of the talks last week uh, restarted with having those, those CEOs and top executives in the room. And with regards to the SAG-AFTRA strike, again, this is the Screen Actors Guild, um, are they looking at similar concerns that were resolved through the writer's strike? Yes and no. So there are some overlapping issues with the Writers Guild. They, too, are worried about AI. Uh, they also have concerns about streaming residuals. But there's also a whole host of issues that are completely separate and apply to their their vast and disparate you know, group of performers, right? Because you have dancers and singers and stunt coordinators and background actors, and they all have their own individual concerns. Um, so those will also take some time to, to parse through and take some time to negotiate. Uh, you know, I imagine that um, the things that the Writers Guild achieved in their contract might provide some kind of philosophical precedent or at least the precedent that the studios were willing to engage on those topics. But it's not it's not exactly like a copy and paste situation. You know, to sort of to wrap up, you know, we, we resolved, obviously, the Writers Guild strike, and there were some economic implications of what happened here. The industry is going through some significant turbulence uh, at the studio level, part of which was undoubtedly the result of massive debt that some of the studios took on. How do you expect the results of this resolution to ultimately affect what we see on our television screens and our movie screens? Are we going to see fewer shows? What, do you have any sort of guesses as to what your crystal ball says? <laughs> That's a good question, and um, I'm sorry, I'm very boring. I'm not much for looking in my own crystal ball for fear of being wrong, but <laughs> I, will, I, I will say that uh, before the strikes even began, there was already an industry-wide contraction that had been, you know, ongoing. And, you know, there was really uh, sort of the, con the conventional wisdom is that there was uh, the studios and the streamers overspent um, when, especially as a lot of these... Uh, budding streamers were trying to get their pipelines filled with content and TV shows and movies and trying to attract paying subscribers. And so there was an over-commissioning, um, and then particularly during the pandemic, and then there was a, a you know, a bit of a withdrawal from there. And, uh, you know, there was a reduction in the amount that was being spent. And, um, you know, now there's been a correction for that overspend. And it's expected that the impact of the strikes will be to, in some ways, accelerate that. Um, you know, not, you know, not not as the fault of the strikes, but just sort of as a, a consequence of, you know, 
things being on hold. And, you know, during this time, a, a lot of studios have been said to be looking to sort of, you know, uh, clean house essentially and we have already seen a contraction too uh, you know like you mentioned with these with the broad M&A that we've seen um, you know these con this consolidation has already resulted in thousands of studio staffers and production staffers who uh, you know have lost their jobs over the last year or two uh, so you know I think the conventional wisdom is that the era of quote unquote peak TV is over and that the 600 or so scripted original TV series that are on the air is unlikely to continue. Um, that's likely to shrink to, you know, we had a, a business affairs executive uh, write a, 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 you know, very detailed essay for us. And um, that number uh, he predicted was likely to shrink to maybe about 350 or so. So I think we're looking essentially like a, you know, 40 to nearly 50% reduction is seems to be the, the consensus here. Elaine, thanks for so much for spending time with us. If our viewers are now curious about how to learn about what's going on in Hollywood, how would they sign up to subscribe to The Ankler? Oh, well, uh, the Strike Guys newsletter is free. That's strikegeist.com. And, uh, you know, if you would love to read more of our content, including, uh, you know, really great essays and insight into the industry, that is at theankler.com. And I always love hearing from folks, too. I've heard from a lot of writers and actors and crew people and studio staffers over these last few months. So I can always be reached at elaine at theankler.com. Thanks for joining us. In 2011, San Francisco began automatically opening a college savings account for every child entering kindergarten in the public school system. Those students are now entering college this fall. Jessica Dickler, contributing writer and ed editor covering personal finance for CNBC.com, investigated and published an article on this program on September 9th, 2023, and joins us this morning to discuss the results. Jessica, thank you for joining Mountain Money. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's begin with, in 2011, San Francisco became the first city in the United States to open a college savings account for every kindergartner. Can you help us understand how San Francisco came to approve this program and how it works? Yeah, so the program was founded by then Mayor Gavin Newsom, who's now the governor and the treasurer of San Francisco. And it was based on some research at the time on the disparity of college access. Data was showing that just engaging with an, a college savings account built an awareness and aspirations that was not shared equally. So the program launched um, about a dozen years ago, automatically opening a savings account seeded with $50 in public funds for every child entering kindergarten. Okay, so they started with $50. Um, is, are there statistics on how much uh, the typical savings account got to be worth by now? Yeah, so according to the treasurer um, I, who I spoke to, there's about, um, I think the number is about 15 million so far in college savings. So these accounts have really grown. Parents have, um, they've engaged in the process, they've contributed their own funds, and at the same time, they help you, the, K2, the K2C program kind of helps you transfer this into a 529 plan. So they've assisted hundreds of families in transferring that money, and then, um, a lot of these students are now going to college. And let's just uh, raise a listener's awareness of a 529 plan. What types of educational expenses can that be spent on? 
Okay, so most people think of 529 plans as paying for tuition, but it can really be for any, what they call a qualified education expense. That can be for room and board, supplies, even alternative programs like apprenticeships. There are a lot of ways you can use a 529 plan and you can also transfer the beneficiary if you're first child doesn't use all the money, you can transfer it to another child or your grandchild. So there's a lot of flexibility. And did, now I understand, do recent changes also make it possible to use it for non-college, even put it into a retirement plan? Yes. So um, 529 plans have long been considered the best way to save for college because of the tax advantages and um, all the ways that you could use that money. But still, families had been concerned about locking up funds in an account that had to be used for education expenses. So parents were saying, you know, what if my kid doesn't go to college or I don't have someone to transfer the, the funds to? Um, there, you know, they were they felt limited by some of those restrictions, and then with the changes of Secure 2.0, there there was this added flexibility that you could then roll over the money into a Roth IRA after about 15 years, totally tax free. So now there's kind of like no um, there's there's no reason that you wouldn't want to use it because there's always that added flexibility of making it into a retirement account down the road. And that again begins in 2024. Yes. I want to go back to the San Francisco plan and what d data. You know, anytime you have a, a social experiment like this, uh, politicians and others like to look at it and see what they can learn from it. You mentioned that $15 million number. Do we have a sense of how many students were involved? What percentage of them are actually going to go to college? Is it materially different than it would have been? Is there any way to, 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 to slice and dice the data like that? Well, I did talk to some of the students um, who were enrolling in college this year that may not have otherwise. And it was really interesting to get their take on it because a lot of these were first generation students who didn't have that, um, you know, that access sort of embedded in their family history. So they were saying, yeah, my parents started to save. It was a conversation that we had at the kitchen table and it became something that we talked about that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise. And um, you know, the kids, too, are worried about how much college costs, and a lot of students are ruling it out. And now they're saying, well, hey, you know, maybe if I have something saved, that kind of opens a door. And then, you know, of course, there are additional resources that help. I mean, it's not just the college savings account, but, um, but that did sort of change the mindset. There is a basic correlation of, of those with and without college savings accounts applying for college. Do you have that kind of base number? Because I guess the whole program was to um, increase the awareness of college availability. Yeah, so there is research, specific research, um, that points to when families have something saved for college, even if it's less than $500, they're more likely to enroll in college and more likely to graduate from college than those with no savings account. So there is um, very specific data on this that points to the success and these programs have been successful so far. Are other cities and or other locations doing anything similar to this, possibly as a result of, the, of what, what sounds like a successful program? Yeah, so the K2C program helped kind of pave the way and it's led to the adoption of similar savings initiatives nationwide. Uh, New York City, Boston, Los Angeles all started programs that are sort of like this. They can vary a little bit, but the idea is the same. In New York, for example, every public school kindergarten student gets $100 in a 529 account. 
And again, <clears throat> it's just the basic investment. It's up to the family, the student, and others to be able to make contrib uh, continuing contributions to that account. Yeah, exactly. And in some of these programs, there are additional rewards that families can earn. Like if you contribute, then maybe there'll be a matching contribution. Or if you link the college savings account to a 529 plan, then there would be an addition, there, there could be additional funds. So it sort of depends on how each one works, but there are, um, there are ways to earn more money. I do want to dip into the Cal Kids program, which was launched in 2022. Can you outline the aspects of what is now the nation's largest children's savings account program? Yeah, so this was also based off of San Francisco's model. The statewide initiative allocated $1.9 million to fund college savings accounts. And it starts with $500 for each low-income California public school student from first to 12th grade. And students who are in foster care can receive an additional $500 and homeless children can get another $500 on top of that. Um, also, any child born after July 1st of last year automatically gets $25. And then, like I said before, if you if the parents register or link the account to a 529 plan, then they can get additional funds up to $100. So there's money out there for every student. These, these, these sort of programs sound very helpful in terms of at least having some money for college. But college expenses, as I understand it, are incredibly daunting. I think you recently wrote about prospective students could expect to spend as much as $1,200 on applications alone. What, what does a, you know, a, a student face just looking at a, 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 even a basic in-state college uh, uh, cost? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. This has become a huge issue. Tuition and fees have more than doubled in 20 years, outpacing income gains, gains over the same time period. So families have college costs more, families have less. And then there are, of course, there's these ballooning student loan balances that have really weighed heavily. And that's causing more students to rethink college or opt out altogether. So not only are students saying they can't afford college, some of the students I spoke to said they can't even afford to apply to college. Just the fees alone are intimidating. With that, and talking about applications to college, you've also recently written about universities seeing an increase in applications. Can you talk about why students are now applying to more schools? Yes, I mean, it's interesting because there are a couple things happening here and they kind of, they seem to conflict, but while some students are opting out of college altogether, saying they just can't afford it, others are saying, if I'm gonna go to college, it has to be a life-changing college. They wanna go to a top school. And during the pandemic, we saw some, some schools waving, you know, becoming test optional. So that opens the door for more students to apply. And it's become, at the very top end, it's become more competitive than ever before. And the acceptance rates are at all time lows. And then when students see that their peers are getting rejected, they think I better cast a wider net and they want to apply to even more schools. And it's kind of become this self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, as as you talk about, we talk about those those costs. You know, while many schools, pri private schools, are five hundred one c three, you know, private charitable, quasi nonprofit institutions, the costs have also gone up dramatically in state institutions. Why is that? And and does it, it, are we seeing sort of a reduction of the commitment of funds by state legislatures to state universities? Is that part of what's driving this? I mean, yeah, you pretty much hit the nail on the head, and this has been in the works long before the pandemic, but state funding, declining state funding has caused 
um, tuition to basically skyrocket. It's pushing more of the costs onto families. So the tuition has, has gone up and there hasn't been any sort of way to supplement that cost through local and state funding. So that just pushes the costs onto parents and there's sort of nowhere that that seems to be slowing down. So that, these are the inevitable forces at play that make it harder for students. Yeah, it's an interesting political decision, right? Like, it's interesting that state legislatures have decided to do that. I, w- I wonder what's making higher education so unpopular with state legislatures. Well, it's kind of like, I mean, if, if parents are picking up the tab, there's not really that much of a reason to change course. Um, there, it's a way to cut budgets and then... Um, and then, you know, tuition seems to rise every year and no one really does anything about it. And it doesn't really impact, um, you know, the number of students that are enrolling to a large extent. There's still plenty of students that are going and picking up the tab and relying on student loans. That makes sense. Uh, there needs to be probably more pain points, which <laughs> I can't imagine. Um, so talking about parents um, and being a parent of a, a new college student, I learned what a FAFSA was. Can you walk us through the what free application for federal student aid is and some of the changes to that process? Okay, yeah. So this is the form that um, most families, almost every family should be filling out during the college application process. It is the gateway to all federal funds including not just loans, but scholarships and grants, which are which is free money to pay for college. Usually that form becomes available this month in October, but this year it's been delayed because there's been this huge effort that's been underway to simplify the process and make it easier. In the past, families weren't necessarily filling out the FAFSA because they felt like it was too complicated or they didn't think that they would qualify for any funds, so they just didn't bother even though the data shows that there's a lot of money available for almost everyone that applies. So the idea is if it became simpler, more families would do it and that would improve college access and some of those pain points that we talked about. But um, so the the simplification process has delayed the opening of the FAFSA. It will be ready in December this year and it's gonna be a little bit different. And with it being available in December, would that impact Um, I guess, availability of information for people making decisions for early acceptance? Yeah, absolutely. Not only is the FAFSA using a new formula um, called the Student Aid Index to calculate how much families can afford to pay, but colleges also rely on that information for their net price calculators that students and families use on the websites to see what college is going to cost them. So without all this information at the outset when families are doing their applications this year, there's just, it's just harder to know what, you know, what each school is going to cost, what your out-of-pocket expenses are going to be, and, um, and there's less information available right now. It makes it harder. Which in an already complicated process doesn't make life easy. We've had the pleasure of speaking with Jessica Dickler. She is a contributing writer and editor at CNBC.com. Jessica, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Grand Welcome Park City, Utah is owned and operated by Helen Green and Paul Holzhausen. This couple, with a combined experience of more than 40 years marketing some of Hollywood's most successful films and television series, now utilize these same talents welcoming guests to Park City. Paul, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. It's great being here. Let's 
begin, can you share with us your journey to Park City? How did you decide to relocate and change careers? Yeah, so my wife and I, Helen, uh, we were in motion picture advertising in LA for 15 years. Um, And then COVID hit pretty hard, you know, the entertainment industry. And then we started looking around, us being both business owners and entrepreneurs, we each had agencies uh, in LA. And then we started looking around, what else can we apply our sort of artistic and business acumen to? So um, a friend of mine was the CEO of Grand Welcome. He's a surf buddy in LA. (laughs) And he was like, hey, do you guys want to make this video for us? And we're like, yeah, sure, you know, anything. And uh, we're like, this looks pretty great. They were selling these franchises off. And, you know, it, it was an opportunity to where you could sort of buy the tech back end for the vacation rental management and what it takes these days to sort of be competitive. And so we're like, wow, we'll make the video and buy a franchise, you know. Um, and my wife has a sister that lives in Salt Lake City. She's always been, like, trying to get us over here. And, you know, and then also covid Uh, allowed the film industry to start working from home more. So we could take some of our, you know, that was a big sort of byproduct. Up to that point, the studios didn't really let people work from home a lot because of security reasons. And so COVID sort of opened that up. So we were able to bring some of that work over here too and kind of do, do both. So you, are you still doing both? Yeah, we're still doing both. Um, mo- mostly my wife's the graphics, uh, motion graphics genius. So I just kind of help with a little bit of the producing and creative, but she does the blunt of the work and then works with some people in LA. But we're all involved in the full-time business of vacation rental management. <laughs> so, wh- so is that what Grand Welcome is? T- tell us what this business is that you bought yeah. the franchise in. So basically, you know, Park City is kind of unique when it comes to the whole Airbnb industry, um, just because they basically did start renting out cabins here in the 60s. Um, homeowners are pretty savvy. Travelers are pretty savvy that come here. And so it's a very competitive market. And, you know, obviously there's a few big players in town who's been doing a great job but like any business you know what we sort of um, realized is there's definitely an opportunity to push this business of vacation rental management property management into the future with the technology that's available dynamic pricing the booking systems the integration of all the websites and so and also um, there's a little bit of a stigma when it comes to property management management managers you know uh, I run into a lot of people that always thinks we're kind of trying to take advantage of them and you know it's tough I get it it's your personal property it's it's a you know that's where the real relationship comes in with the homeowner you really have to gel with the homeowner so, so as a mechanical matter do you sit between the homeowner and the customer on the Airbnb site how does it work yeah so basically what we what we got with our franchise money what we bought was the whole take back in that's what I really like about Grand Welcome it sort of has this 55 national locations it's a national brand so you kind of get this take back in firepower that you would with like a Vicasa but then they they um, couple it with local owners and operators and that's really where the difference comes in you know we're not just people manning a desk we live this business 24 7. so we're the ones setting all the standards guest services we handle that grand welcome handle also handles that so basically uh, it goes out to all these websites airbnb vrbo still being the predominant 
big players, but they also gobbled up some smaller sites. So it goes out to all the affiliates, Expedia's, Hotels.com. So you end up on, on about 25 channels, but that are all reputable, that don't generate a lot of cancellations or fraud. One of the things I thought was interesting about this being a franchise um, piece is as well, there's a bit of education best practices for the property management. Absolutely. So you have the back, back end system that you're using that, um, you know, you've bought into, that's bookings, that's integrations of everything. But as well, you've got a, a network of so many other property managers and other communities going through kind of, I would assume, common issues that you all face? Yeah, you know, it's um, funny. I met somebody from another property management company the other day. We were actually talking about getting a little more organized instead of being so competitive, really trying to help each other out because ultimately I do feel that property management companies are ambassadors for the way of living in Park City. And if the local residents are concerned about keeping that, you know, way of life here, then we play a very important part in that role as far as trying to get, you know, guests that respect the community, the outdoor lifestyle, Utah, all that stuff here. And then also setting the ground rules with them being like, listen, you know, please be respectful to your neighbors because there's a lot of permanent residents mixed into these vacation rentals. And I know that's a big concern out there. And I feel like sometimes the community doesn't feel like we have their backs, you know, and, and um, you know, just being a little bit of an outsider, sort of being, you know, newish in town, you know, it's enabled us to sort of see how, you know, how we can help facilitate that part and really give people a little bit more confidence in property managers again, you know? So as a property manager, you, you, you sit between the owner yes. and the renter. So, Correct. So, so, so I go on the website, I'm looking for a rental place in Park City, Yes. and I'll, I'll see different pictures of the various uh, options on an Airbnb site. When I click on that, it's coming to your website? Yes, correct. So it actually goes to a, a grand welcome right. website that's a landing page for Park City. That runs to you, right? Yeah. Actually, they book through the Airbnb and VRBO. Okay. Um, but you can also do direct bookings okay. if people go directly to your website. So usually we get people in through VRBO and Airbnb um, because those are the national the brand. You have to be great on those sites, right? Um, and then to get them back, say, listen, come back next time, book direct through us, save some money, you know, um, and trying to generate return customers ultimately. You, oh. <laughs> well, the, the follow-up I had for that yeah. is, as a homeowner, okay, does that, does that mean that all of the interaction between the renter and, and, and you, I'm sorry, very inarticulate, that you handle all the interaction with the renter. So yes. the homeowner itself is paying you to not have to deal with it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We try to really do this hassle-free, right? That's really the thing is you're living in another town. You want to know that somebody's taking care of your place. The guests are very demanding. And, um, you know, like calls like, hey, why is it not snowing? You know, and I'm just like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know? But um, so that's a full-time job. So... And then talking about, you know, your feeders being Airbnb and VRBO, one of the things I noticed is that you're an Airbnb super host. Yes. So let's talk about what that means for the property owners having that designation and what does it mean for the guests that are visiting? Yeah, so it's just one more thing that can help you get a booking online. You know, when you put in a property, say, five, six people, Park City, there's going to be a list of properties. Those properties, where you are in those search rankings, depends on how long you've been. Say, if you've been with the same manager for five years, you're probably going to 
pop up to the top of that list very easily because you probably have a lot of reviews and a lot of visits, right? When you change managers, unfortunately, you 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 lose a lot of those that online equity that okay. your property has, and so. If you're a super host and somebody just signed on with you or they just bought the property, this property doesn't have any online equity, then that's just one more thing that can help get early reservations is an Airbnb super host. Now, now you mentioned you get calls from people complaining about why isn't it snowing. <laughs> I, I really want to hear a few stories of the most interesting and odd kinds of requests you get from guests so people get a sense of what they're avoiding by hiring a property ah. manager. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, you know, um, <clears throat> we do uh, some stuff in the condo hotels that are supposed to be ski in, ski out. I get people that are get very upset when the lifts aren't open, you know, and that's so be above sure. and beyond like my capabilities. Yeah, exactly. Um, that was interesting. One night I had to, I have a big four by four van. I had to get in out of bed in the middle of the night and go rescue a film crew out of the snow because they were driving minivans in four foot of snow. <laughs> so that was interesting. You know, it's it just it's kind of not a it's definitely not a boring job, you know. And also sometimes there's alcohol involved, so that gets interesting and, and honestly yeah, it's like <laughs> constant anger management therapy. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> no, just kidding. It's like and honestly for one, you know, one guests that might be unpleasant i would say there's nine guests That's 10 good. guests that That's like good, just love it good ratio yeah exactly now uh, honestly ultimately the, the majority of guests are great we, uh, park city really does attract great guests that's why i always tell people don't be scared to rent out your place like this isn't like a, a Na you know like a nashville or somebody or like a vegas or something where people just come to get like wasted and stuff you know people are really are here for the outdoor lifestyle and skiing and so forth so we really don't see any sort of malicious damage to the properties or anything that often. Honestly, I haven't had anything like that happen. So it's been pretty great. So, so how many properties do you currently have and how many people does it take to keep them where they need to be? Uh, so we have around 30 properties. Um, and right now it's a full-on family business. So we kind of, it's me, uh, um, my mom is our general manager. She mans the office and then my wife and I we do like kind of all the field work and you know basically but uh just like everybody else in town we we really uh use the top the best vendors in town right. to help get all our stuff done we work with a great cleaning company you know so it's really getting all those operations smoothed out which can be pretty challenging up here in park city yeah i imagine finding the the, the core of vendors that you want to work with was that i imagine that took a little time and it, and it does and i bet you have to change them from time to time yeah, just, you know, I think it's also good just having a few people in your pocket, not just being too dependent on one or two people. You know, stuff does happen, but a lot of these guys, they're great, but they live, you know, 45 minutes to an hour away. Not a lot of them live here in Park City, and so that's challenging. And there's always that, you know, scourge of power, powder flu that comes on on, on yeah. Powder Day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, listen, getting cleaners up here from from other places when it's snowing and it's like a salad of cars on the 80 is yeah. is challenging as we start to wrap up what would you say are some you know two good things to look for or to ask when looking for a property manager for your property yeah i think it's really important to know what you want out out, out of the experience right everybody's very different some people are looking for somebody to do everything for them somebody's just saying like 
I want to do nothing. I think it's important to be upfront and being like, this is, this is what I expect from you, right? And then the property manager to go, okay, cool, my system is set up to a way of where I can facilitate that for you or not. So we try to be flexible and stuff, but it is, really is about like, get somebody that can fit your lifestyle, you know, whether it's a real moneymaker for you or you just use it as a supplement because you're using it a lot, you know, it's just like find somebody that can basically tailor that management program to fit you best. That makes sense. How can our listeners find out more about you? Um, yes, um, our, I, I don't have our website. <laughs> You're supposed to know your website. I know. I know. I'm so worst. it does come up quite quickly if you do Grand Welcome. Yeah, Grand com. Welcome of Park City Vacation yeah. Rental Management. Uh, I'm sorry. I. That's okay. It's okay. So so you can do it that way, and you, you are I, I take it accepting new new customers if, if people are. Interested. Oh yes, absolutely. Okay. This is definitely the the time when we are signing. Um, signing up new customers you know we try to get people settled in before the winter comes which is a big thing um so you know and we'll have links to the to the page on our post and we do post all our interviews online at kpcw.org paul thank you for joining us on mountain money okay thank you so much thanks for listening if you enjoy the show make sure you leave a review no matter how you listen and we'd appreciate it if you clicked five stars